Amen. Well, our scripture text this morning for the sermon comes from the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verses 23 through 29. Hear God's word this morning. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons and daughters of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or in female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be to God. Father, we pray you pour your Holy Spirit upon us and upon our minds and our, our understanding. We pray for deep knowledge and wisdom this morning about how to think about race how to think about reconciliation, how to think about justice. Give us gospel categories, we pray, as we continue to wrestle with and think through um, the challenges and the pain and the sorrow that we've been experiencing as a nation for the past uh, month. We pray that, that Jesus would stand in our midst and stand, uh, that we would be in him and that we would have a sense of what it means to put on Christ and how central that is to true justice in this world. So we pray in his, his, his name this morning. Amen. Amen. I want to continue this morning, as I promised last week, to return to this question of justice and racial justice. Um, the problem of race in America is an open wound that is unlikely to ever go away in our lifetimes. And the events of this past months are just a reminder of that. They're not an anomaly. They're not um, kind of a, a one-off of what is otherwise harmonious race relations in America. They are merely a painful reminder of a deep and abiding wound that our nation has struggled for centuries to heal. And what makes this such a difficult conversation for everyone, whether you're black or whether you're white or whether you're, you're Hmong or Chinese or, or Native American, whatever, whatever, um, whoever we are, these are really difficult conversations because they ra raise really fundamental questions um, about our moral standing our identities, and our experiences as whole groups of people. And because we're talking about whole groups of people, white or black, inevitably, because of this, the conversations generally tend to fall out along political lines, American political, along the sort of American political divisions. And so it's impossible for us to have a conversation about race in America and racism 
without also being political about it and speaking politically because how we think about these issues um, has real implications for public policy, for culture, for legislation. And that's one of the reasons why pastors like myself tend to be afraid to address issues of race because there's always the fear of being labeled that you're being political or partisan in a certain kind of direction. And so it's easier to stay at the level of kind of spiritual, theological level that's, that's fairly high up there and not get into the nitty gritty. But the reality is that the gospel is political and it is public in its character. And to not to recognize that is not to actually understand the gospel. The gospel has political implications because of Jesus's ascension into heaven. Jesus is not merely a spiritual Messiah. He is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he has been enthroned above all the nations. And obedience to the gospel is bringing all of our life under his rule and under his authority, which includes how our public life and our social relationships are ordered. It's impossible to be fully obedient to the gospel without having to think and speak politically in a specific context. But unfortunately, and here's the real problem, and this is the rub, all the political categories of every society, including our own, are fallen and distorted, imperfect and flawed, and they need to be corrected. And that means, and this is the task of the Christian politically, that means we have to do the hard work of letting the gospel reshape our political categories. And this is not an easy thing to do because it's not as if those political categories are just sitting right there in the Bible for us to pull out and to apply to any particular circumstance. And it's not as if these categories are ready at hand for us to use either from the platforms of, say, the Republican Party or the Democratic parties. And yet it's impossible for us not to um, speak and to think in the categories of our own political context. And so what inevitably will happen for us as Christians, I think if we're being faithful to the gospel and also to the scriptures, is that sometimes depending on the issue and depending on what aspect of the issue we're talking about, we will sound like political conservatives and sometimes we will sound like political liberals. But the key question I think that we need to always keep in mind when we weigh into these very political waters How does a gospel shape and reshape my political categories around a specific issue? So this morning, what I want to do, I want, I want you to think with me. I want you to think with me. I want to challenge you to think hard this morning. I'm going to try not to be too complicated, but I'm not going to apologize because a lot of times we come to these conversations and we just have utter clarity about what it's all about. And we actually haven't done deep thinking on this. And so I want us to think a little bit together with the scriptures. I want to reflect with you on what the Christian faith has to say about the issue of racial justice and reconciliation. 
What does it mean to bring the gospel to bear on this particular problem? How does the scripture shape our categories and thinking? And again, this is a very big topic, and so, you know, I could spend many, many sermons on this. But the one claim that I, w- I really want to push forward to you this morning and work out is this. At the heart of the Christian doctrine of salvation is a direct address to the problem of race. At the heart and center, it's not on the peripheries, it is at the heart and at the center of the gospel of the Christian understanding of salvation is the problem of race. The book of Galatians here is key. The whole book of Galatians is about the problem of race and grace and how they are wound together. Um, If you remember the book, Paul is writing, Paul is the hottest he ever got in any of his letters writing to the Galatians. And the issue at stake is this. There is our Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians together, and the Jewish Christians are insisting that the Gentile Christians, in order to participate at the table, to come to the table and to belong, need to be circumcised. In other words, they need to become culturally and religiously Jewish. And Paul is very angry. He says, this is a violation of the gospel itself. And what you have to see, though, is you, you need to understand that, that, so circumcision is one of the works of the law, right? And Paul talks a lot about works of the law, and it's not by works of the law that we're saved, but by grace and through faith. And that is absolutely central, and it is a vertical thing. It is not just a social thing, but for Paul, it is also social. It also has to do with the, the, the question of the church and what the church means to be. And here are Gentile believers being excluded from the fellowship because they're not Jewish enough. See, we are tempted to frame this problem as just a question of racial injustice. But for Paul, it is a question of salvation. It is a question of what is the gospel. And so what Paul does in the verses right before us here, which are in many ways a great and beautiful summary of of his whole theology of grace and race, in, in, this, in the whole book of Galatians, is he, he brings together all these really inter, interwound themes of, of, of baptism, which is social, um, what it means to belong to the family of Abraham, the father of the Jews, right? To receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and what it means to be reconciled amongst different people groups, whether it's race or whether it's social status or whether it's male or female, all in Jesus Christ. And for Paul, baptism in Christ is a visible enactment of a a true spiritual reality of this central truth that in Jesus Christ, there is reconciliation of all peoples. For in Christ, you are all sons and daughters of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul repeats this formula and expands it and adds barbarians and Scythians to it in the book of of Colossians. This is not a one-off thought of Paul's. Baptism symbolizes and enacts the unity of all the races in and around the person of Jesus Christ. This is really important. Christianity introduces into human history the category and the concept of racial reconciliation. 
I know this is a very bold claim. <laughs> we sort of take that for granted today. We kind of take for granted that, yes, we should be reconciled to one another. But what you need to understand, and I can't defend this right now, um, but without Jesus Christ, there is no, I mean, there is no racial reconciliation in, in the Western, in the Western uh, mind. And I mean, we stand downstream 2,000 years of human history that has been deeply impacted by the person of Jesus. And it's really only in the Christian faith where you see the beginnings of the possibility of bringing all people of different races and tribes and languages together. And so th this, is, um, this is a unique gift and contribution of the Christian faith to the world. So uh, this morning I just wanna, I wanna talk about three things in particular running through this text. I wanna talk about the history of race in the Bible. The problem of race, how the Bible sees the problem of race and racism, and then the answer to, to the problem of racism. And the first thing I wanna do is this, and, and, and again, I wanna set the bigger context for you for this verse. So I'm gonna get back to Abraham. Uh, but the issue of race is a theme that runs from the very beginning of the Bible to the very end of the Bible. Um, it is not incidental. It is everywhere. If you know what to look for, it is on almost every page of the scriptures. And the Bible's word for race is, this, in the Greek at least, and this is translated from the Hebrew as well, is the word ethnos. Nations or Gentiles is ethnos. And, and um, race in the Bible isn't simply the color of your skin, like your biological, like what you look like. That is part of it, for sure. But it is your whole way of life. To be an ethnos, to be a nation, is to be a people group. That, that involves a religious identity, a political identity, a ling like a language and cultural identity, which involves certain kinds of foods and all kinds of things, right? So all the various ethnos, the nations, represent different ways of life. And we see the very first mention of the races or, or distinctions between humanity, um, explicitly at least in Genesis 11, in the Tower of Babel. And at that point, all the nations of the earth had gathered in one spot, and they were trying to build a tower up into heaven. And God comes down, and what does he do? Is he, he scatters them across the surface of the earth, and he gives them different languages so that they can't understand one another. And the curse of Babel is not, is not multiculturalism, because that actually was God's original intent. The curse of Babel is that we can't understand one another and our differences, and so we fight with one another. And that is the history that you see in the Bible. In the aftermath of Babel is what we see is nation warring against nation, race warring against race, Canaanite, Philistine, Amalekite, Egyptian, Babylonian, Assyrian, Persian, Israelite, Roman, at war with one another all the time. The history of the nations in the Bible is a history of war, it is a history at times of genocide, of subjugation, of cultural and military oppression and imperialism. It is throughout all the scriptures. But God's plan of salvation from the earliest stages provided and looked towards the reu reunification or the reuniting of the nations together. And it happens in the man Abraham and just 
Chapter 11, you see the dispersion of the nations. Chapter 12, which was our sacred reading, you hear, you see God calling this pagan man, Abraham, out of Ur the Chaldees to make, and he promises, I'm gonna make you a great ethnos. I'm gonna make you into a great nation. Let me just read to you. Um, and I will make you a great nation, an ethnos, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And here's the key line. And in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God calls this man, Abraham, he says, I'm going to make you into a great nation, a great tribe, a great race of people. But it's not just for your own sake, but also me someday I want to use you to bless all the nations. And I think it's really important here to see that in the, ver the most explicit promise of the gospel and of God's salvation, that at the center of it is the reconciliation of all the nations, of all the races together. The ethnically distinct people of Israel are to be a blessing to all the nations. This is the plan from the beginning, and it is only fully revealed and realized in the person of Jesus Christ. And so in Galatians, when Paul is very directly evoking the history and the memory and the legacy of Abraham, he, it serves two purposes for him that are interrelated, again, around this issue of grace and race. On the one hand, Abraham illustrates the meaning of justification by faith over against works of the law. Abraham was, as the founder, as the father, biologically and religiously and culturally of the distinct people of the Jews, he was established in his relationship with God by faith. And God credited it to him as righteousness. This is 400 years before God gave the law. And, and Paul makes a big point of this, how Abraham started as a pagan, and God called him out. And, in, and to be the offspring of Abraham is to be like him, which is we are set right with God by faith. And that is credited to us as righteous. This is justification by faith, right? So that's the first reason and, and, and really the, 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 the sort of leading um, reasoning that Paul uses in the book of Galatians. But in the background of this is, is the second one, is, which is that Abraham illustrates how Gentiles, non-Jewish people, can come to belong in, without having to become racially Jewish, right? I mean, again, this is what's at stake, right? That, that you know, the Jews, these Christian Jews are saying, okay, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, you have to become Jewish like us. You've got to be circumcised. And again, here we have in the background this promise of Abraham, that through you I will bless all the nations. I'll bless all the nations. What Paul is doing here is saying that you don't have to have a certain biological or cultural sort of thing about you in order to belong to the church, in order to experience God's salvation. Justification by faith makes this accessible. So what Paul is doing here, and he's very, it's very sophisticated. He is applying the doctrine of justification to a problem of racial reconciliation. Justification by faith is a fulfillment of that part of the promise where God says that through you, I will bless all the nations. That's how it happens. That's how it works. Ultimately, that blessing is summed up in the person of Jesus Christ, who is Abraham's offspring. By faith in Jesus, all nations can belong. By faith in Jesus, 
all nations are blessed. So what we have here at the very heart of the Christian doctrine of salvation is a mystery and a bit of a paradox. And we have to recognize the fact that there is this question of racial distinction and difference that's enshrined at the very heart of our understanding of salvation. God saves all nations, all peoples through one nation. He saves all human beings, all flesh, through the flesh of one man, this Jewish man, Jesus. He doesn't call us to abandon or to deny or to revise out of our lives the reality of, our, of the nationness, our, our racial distinctions, but he saves it. He redeems it. That's what Pentecost is all about, which we, we looked at a couple weeks ago, that Pentecost reveals to us that, that salvation as it goes out doesn't mean we all have to learn to speak Hebrew. But no, the Spirit translates Jesus, translates the mighty works of God into our language, into our culture, and sanctifies us. He pours out the Spirit in all flesh. And so there's a lot of things at play here. On the one hand... Coming to this Jewish Jesus and this, this people of Israel humbles our ethnic pride, but it doesn't cancel out what makes us distinct and different. See, the, the issue of race is not just a side ethical or political issue. It is a gospel issue. And at the center of the Christian vision of salvation is a vision of reconciliation of all the nations and of all people in Jesus Christ. And, and here's, friends, the power of the gospel is a power that is a, makes provision for real reconciliation in the world. It really does, friends, that, that only in Jesus Christ, that the gospel is the power of reconciliation, not just with God. It is, first and foremost, but also with one another. So, so that's the, um, the, the history that kind of gives us the context. Um, Let's talk about the problem of racism. How, are we, how does the Bible define the problem of racism? I mean, that never uses that language, racism. But it definitely has an understanding. And we know that the problem of race relations and racism is very complex, and there's a lot of different dimensions that we have to hold together. So I have three statements, three statements that could be sermons in and of themselves, but I will do my best, since I'm already at 22 minutes, to keep them tight. But the first statement is this, racism is a problem of the heart. That's statement one. Racism is a problem of morality. That's problem two. And racism is a problem of the powers. That's number three. So racism is a problem of the heart. What we today call racism has existed in every age and in every culture, although it has not always been called that. From the beginning of recorded history, Nations and people have been warring against one another, seeking to subjugate and to oppress and to marginalize one another. The reality is this, is that people who are different from us threaten us. And they, they threaten us by just calling our very existence into question, by their existence, that they exist differently than us. And I think you see the primal origin story of this in the story of Cain and Abel. Cain is a worker of the ground, and Abel is a keeper of the sheep. And the way the story plays out is the worker of the ground, Cain, the older brother, 
becomes jealous against his younger, weaker brother, and he kills him. And so the farmer kills the shepherd. The older brother kills the younger brother. The more powerful brother takes advantage of the weaker, more vulnerable brother. And friends, this is, this is our story. See, we often think about the fall and we, you know, if you're in the Christian world, you, you're used to hearing about how you're a son or a daughter of Adam and Eve, like we participate in their sin in a sense. It's our story as well. But friends, just as much, we are sons and daughters of Cain and Abel. And that what plays out in so many different ways in our life is the same sin of fratricide, brother hate, <laughs> sister hate. You know, we talk about racism. Racism is not some kind of distinct, unique sin or thing that that just sort of manifests itself. Racism is on the spectrum of what we might call hatred and enmity. It's on the spectrum because the, the deep root of racism is just it's enmity and hatred. That's the deepest root of it. And that is it's rooted in every single human heart that is, is a part, is a son or daughter of Cain and Abel. It's true of all of us. And so when I say that, that racism is a problem of the heart, what I'm saying is that it, it, it's like a default setting because hatred and enmity is a default setting. And, and often the things that we hate the most are easy to hate are those things that are different, that we don't understand, that seem to oppose us, that seem to threaten our lifestyle, our existence, and it's very easy to hate. And so racism really, truly is a default setting of the human heart. It is not merely a learned behavior. Yes, it is a learned behavior with particular manifestations of it, but nobody has to teach the human heart how to be racist. Nobody has to teach the human heart how to hate because it is natural behavior of what happens when sinful people try to navigate the world. And what this means, friends, is that the problem of racial division is much deeper than we can possibly imagine. It begins in the human heart. Which means you can't just educate it out. You can't just train it out. Because it starts in the heart. But it also means this, that racism is a God problem. Racism is a God problem. It's not just a social problem. It's not just, you know, a societal problem. It's a God problem. If you read the story of Cain and Abel clearly or carefully, we know that, you know, Cain's real problem is not with Abel. Cain's real problem is not with his brother. It's with God. And but he takes his problem with God out on his brother. God didn't accept his sacrifice, but he took his brother's. And it is the same with racism and all forms of hatred. It is us out working out our own alienation from God. And if this is true, what that means is that any solution to the problem that doesn't go to this level will only be temporary fixes. It won't able to get at the deepest root and heart, which is spiritual alienation and enmity. So that's the first thing, right? Racism is a problem of the heart. The second one is this. Racism is a problem of morality. We tend to think of racism in our, in our climate and context as a problem of immorality. But the biblical world, racism is first and foremost a morality problem. 
We see racism as something that's really irrational and immoral and unreasonable and inexcusable. And for sure, manifestations of it we see in the world in form of hate crimes and, and that are, are just blatantly immoral and, and irrational. But the most abiding divisions and the things that keep conflict between different people groups is not sort of, sort of irrational hatred and immorality, but different and conflicting moral visions of the world between the nations. And again, it's helpful to, I know this is a bit of a subtle point, and I, I, I hesitated whether to, to, to even go here, but I think it's at the heart of what Paul is getting at in Galatians. I mean, this is, this is the form of racism that Paul is addressing with the Galatian body. The Jewish refusal to have table fellowship with Gentile believers was not grounded on irrational prejudice and hatred of Jews against Gentiles. It was actually built upon very well-reasoned moral convictions that Jews had about Gentiles as unclean, as, as idolaters, and as morally questionable. And the Jews didn't want to be associated with this. And so their reasons were moral and they were religious. So to say that racism is a morality problem isn't to deny that it doesn't, in its manifestation, become immoral and sinful and even hateful. But if we ever want to get at the root of the problem of racism and talk as a people, different nations, we have to understand that what holds racism in place are distorted moral visions. Distorted moral visions. And I don't even mean that in the sense that it's immoral like what we think about our race. Think about this in this way. Every form of racial pride, every, everybody has it, whether you're white or whether you're black, whether you're Chinese, every nation, whether you're German or French, every nation has a sense of racial pride. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Patriotism was what we call it. And that's not necessarily bad. However, and even when it doesn't become oppressive, and yet oftentimes we want to build our identity around this, right? And what it does is it ends up keeping us, um, leads us to sort of oppress others. Because at the root of all forms of racism, and it's always very, very subtle, is a belief in the moral and cultural superiority of our own race and ethnicity, our own way of doing things, our own way of thinking about the world. And again, this is so natural to human nature. It's so natural, but I, I think it's so important for us to wrestle here with the morality aspect of it. Because if we're always coming to race, conversations about race and wanting quickly to label things as racist, this, and we don't actually get to the deeper moral questions and problems, that there's a moral, there's a morality here. There's a morality that we all have in the way we think about ourselves as white or black and the way we evaluate things. And what Paul does, which is so radical, and his doctrine of justification is he gets at the very heart and he says, listen, your Jewish pride or your white, you know, your American pride or, or whatever it might be, you cannot make that a condition for people belonging. You, that will not save you. That is fallen. You have to submit it to the person of Jesus Christ. There are times, to be very clear, there are times to prophetically call out and critique specific actions like the death of, the killing of, of George Floyd as blatant racism that is immoral and unjust. But if we want, if we will fail 
to engage the conversation at the level we do if we do not recognize the morality question here when we have honest conversations about what at a deep level divides us. What Paul does in Galatians is he attacks the moral pride of these Jewish believers that wants to keep these Gentiles out. And he does it through justification by faith. Racial identity is not saving identity. The only saving identity is identity in Jesus Christ, which we have by faith. Okay, so there's, I know there's a lot to that, and there's probably a lot of application of questions about it, but I gotta move on. So racism is a problem of the heart, racism is a problem of morality, and finally racism is a problem of the powers, the powers and the principalities. Now, if you are a politically conservative person or you lean that way, probably the, what I've said so far about the problem of race has maybe not troubled you so much. Here's, though, where things might get uncomfortable. Racism is also a problem of powers and principalities. This is the Bible's way of saying that racism is structural and systemic. The language of powers and principalities in the Bible speaks to the way in which evil, injustice, racism becomes systematic, normalized, and part of the very structures that we take for granted as givens, right? Paul addresses this very clearly in Galatians, not in our verses, but in a few verses afterwards. He addresses the Galatian problem, and he recognizes this, this powers and principalities problems. Look in verse chapter 4, if you have your Bibles. Paul has said, um, this is before Jesus Christ, and he's speaking to Jews and Gentiles. Before Jesus Christ, you were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. You were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, who were enslaved, so that they might receive adoption as sons and daughters. Now, it's that word, elementary principles, and I can't go into all the background of that word, but, but for Paul, this is a word that evokes this category of what I'm saying is powers and principalities. And powers and principalities are demonic spiritual forces that manifest themselves in the world as structural evil, as ideologies, as structural realities that enslave and oppress people. And so that's what Paul's saying. He's like, once before Christ, before you were in Jesus Christ, you were enslaved. You were slaves to the elementary principles. And those elementary principles are real ideologies in the world, like racism. You were enslaved by that. And behind those, those ideologies and those structures were our actual demonic forces and realities that are organizing them in the world. See, this is, the, this is the scripture's language of powers and principalities. These elementary principles evoke <clears throat> the influence and the presence of these structural realities that enslave and oppress people. So Paul is saying that prior to Christ, you were enslaved and held rule by all these systems and structures, but in Jesus Christ, you've been liberated. The, the spiritual power of them has been broken over your own heart and your own mind and imagination. So when we talk about racism, 
I know a lot of people, especially white Christians, white evangelicals, and if you're in the more conservative end of the spectrum, and you hear talk about white supremacy and the legacy, or you hear talk about systemic injustice and racism, and immediately you think, well, this sounds Marxist. This sounds leftist, socialist. And let, me, and, and let me just be really clear here. Where did Marx get all those ideas? He got them from the Bible. But what he did is he weaponized them. He denied the existence of God. He adopted a materialistic understanding of history. And he uh, you know, had this sort of binary understanding. And he weaponized them. But the Bible <laughs> gives us a profound analysis of structural evil in the world. And it's not just powers and principalities is uh, the only category for it. And so it's really, really important for us to, to not think, if we hear that, that conversation about an analyzing race in terms of structure and, and that just to think, well, this is just some ungodly ideology because it's very complicated, it's, better, it's more than that. Friends, there are powers and principalities, real spiritual beings that have orchestrated and organized and are reflected in the systemic evils and injustices of this world. Those are real. <laughs> you can't deny them. The question is how you analyze them. And what I, what I want to say is this. It's so important for us to hold all these things together. Racism is a problem of the heart, friends. Racism is a problem of morality, and racism is a problem of the powers and the principalities. And a gospel-defined politic is one that will hold all these together, and sometimes will sound like conservatives, and sometimes will sound like liberals. But the question we always have to ask is, what does the gospel say? How does the Bible want us to think about these issues and not be reactive and let the political categories and discourse of American politics determine how we think about them? And that requires a lot of humility and patience on our part and hard thinking. It requires hard thinking. Okay, I want to conclude here with the last. What is the answer to the problem of racism? There's two answers. Jesus Christ and the church. Jesus Christ and the church. Friends, the only ultimate solution to the problem of race, the problem of racism, is a person and this person is Jesus Christ. It is only in him and by him and through him that the two can become one. And this is not just spiritual platitude. It is not just spiritual platitude. Radically Christ-centered solution to the problem of race is, is required. You cannot extract the person of Jesus. There is no permanent fix or long-term answer to the problem of race in the world in America outside of Jesus. Amen? And this is not an excuse to not pursue racial justice and reconciliation in the public sphere. But it is to recognize as Christians that only Jesus can bring the final and full healing and reconciliation that our nation is crying out for right now. Only Jesus can do that. And our responsibility as Christians, our evangelistic responsibility and witness right now is to proclaim this reality boldly again and again and again. It's to call for racial justice, but to call for it in the person of Jesus. And this is the beautiful thing that happened this past Sunday when a lot of us, many of you, gathered in Sherman Park and 
pastors and preachers and people got up and they witnessed to racial injustice but proclaimed Jesus boldly. And as we marched and we sang hymns and we cried for justice and we praised Jesus at the same time. That's what it means, friends, to see Jesus as the one because only Jesus can address the deepest problem. Only Jesus can heal the heart of hatred and enmity. Only Jesus can teach us what it means to be justified, not based on racial pride or cultural status or wealth, but in him. Only Jesus can break the bondage of racist powers and principalities which hold us all enthralled. Only Jesus can do this. But he has called us, the church, to be instruments and to be workers of justice and love. And again, this brings us back to this theme of baptism. As Christians, we need to have a church-focused, church-based approach to this conversation about racial reconciliation. Because only the church has been empowered with the grace and the ability to be able to do what we all want to happen. And it starts in baptism, that in Jesus there is neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, black or white, poor or rich. We are all one We all belong to the same family. In the church, the curse of Cain begins to be reversed. Dr. Martin Luther King talked a lot in his his writing and his preaching and his, his, his activism about the church as a beloved community. As the church as the beloved community. And the mark of the beloved community is one of justice that pursues justice but it is a community of love. And he gets that from actually the Gospel of John and the Epistles of John and this idea of being a beloved community. I said last week, no justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. No love, no justice. No love, no justice. Dr. King says this, it was in there. Love is a condition for justice, friends. Love is a condition for justice. This is what King says, love is creative and redemptive. Love builds up and unites. Hate tears down and destroys. The aftermath of the fight with fire method is bitterness and chaos, and the aftermath of the love method is reconciliation and creation of the beloved community. Physical force can repress and restrain and coerce and destroy, but it cannot create and organize anything permanent. Only love can do that. Yes, love, which means understanding creative, redemptive goodwill, even for one's enemies. This is the solution to the race problem. Friends, only love can create. Only love can organize anything that is permanent. Only love can heal. And to be part of that beloved community is to be people who have been given the power of the Holy Spirit and grace to be able to embody, because of our head, that love that builds up, that unites, that brings together, and that heals the divisions of our world. That it only happens in Jesus Christ. And it is the fundamental, one of the fundamental missions that God has called the church to be. Let's pray. Oh God, we give you thanks that in Jesus Christ you have healed um, the lasting divisions between us, even though we experience them on an ongoing basis. 
We do pray, Lord, that you give us strength, you give us perspective, you give us humility, and most of all, you give us love. Give us that love that creates, give us that love that organizes, give us that love that heals. And may we proclaim boldly the person of Jesus Christ in this time, in this moment, and into this situation with a firm resolve and conviction that it is only he that can bring about true healing and lasting justice and love. And so it's in his name we pray. Amen.